pray together. God, help us to not see these stories of Easter the same way that we've always seen them. Help us to look on them with new eyes. God, help us to see something of ourselves and help us to learn something that we can use to better serve you through these stories that, that really a lot of us have heard so many times. God, speak to us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One thing that has always been interesting to me about the Bible is that there are extremely famous, extremely well-known people whose names we simply don't know. For, for instance, even outside of Christianity, there are plenty of people who have heard of the woman at the well. And you could probably assign her a name, but, but I looked. <laughs> She's never named. She's never named. But, but people would say, well, I've heard of the woman at the well. Even sometimes in story form, Jesus talked about the Good Samaritan. It was a story, it was a parable he told. People have heard of the Good Samaritan. They didn't have a name. Or even, even to go Old Testament on you here, Lot's wife. A lot of people have heard of Lot's wife and what happened to her. She was disobedient. She was turned into a pillar of salt. It was kind of a rough situation for her. But we don't know what her name was. There are some theories, but we don't know her name. You didn't have to be named in Scripture to stand out. You didn't have to be named in Scripture to be important to God's story. You didn't have to be named in Scripture to be remembered even. And that struck me as I began to prepare this message because we're going to talk about the, the two thieves that were crucified alongside Jesus, and we don't know their names. We typically just refer to them as the two thieves or the two criminals. They are, in fact, not named in Scripture. Now, there is a, 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 an apocryphal writing known as the Gospel of Nicodemus. I don't know if any of you are into some of those extra-biblical sources or have ever studied them before. Um, there is one called the Gospel of Nicodemus, which, while considered... Um, helpful in some ways to the church. Ultimately, it was determined to, to not be God-inspired, um, and therefore it's not part of the Bible as we know it. But in that writing, the thieves actually are named. Um, they're identified as Dismas and Gestus. Now, it's possible some of you may have heard of that before. I don't know if that's really their names or not. And I'm not sure it matters, because named or not, to me, these guys are not just a footnote in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. There is Something fascinating to me about the exchange that, that we read between Jesus and these men, and my hope today is that we can learn something from their conversation. So just to catch us up on where we are, Jesus had been turned over to the Jewish religious leaders, largely thanks to Judas, one of his followers, one of his disciples, um, who betrayed him. And the Jewish religious leaders, they wanted Jesus executed. The truth is they didn't really have a good reason other than that Jesus was kind of messing up their ability to be the Jewish religious leaders and to do that the way that they wanted to. Um, the Jewish religious leaders held very tightly to the Old Testament law, but they didn't necessarily go about things the way that God would have really wanted them to. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus begins to challenge some of the traditions, some of the things that the Jewish religious leaders did, he became a problem. He became an inconvenience, and so they tried to, to trick him into actually doing something wrong. And when that doesn't work, they decide, well, we've just got to deal with it any way possible. So they wanted to have him executed. They arrested him. But at that time, the Jews were under Roman rule. The Jewish leaders weren't able to carry out an execution, but the Romans could, and so they turned him over to Pilate, the Roman governor, because Pilate had the authority, the ability, to order and carry out an execution. Pilate himself, as we spent a lot of time last week talking about, found no reason. He found no proof, nothing that said, yeah, this guy deserves to be executed. And yet because 
of the crowd and an almost certain impending riot. Because of his desire to retain his political position, whatever it was, Pilate really saw no reason to execute Jesus, and yet when the time came, he washed his hands of the matter and ordered the execution. Jesus was beaten severely, forced to carry his own cross, and then he's hung on this cross between these two thieves. And in actuality, what we're probably talking about here is not petty thieves, but revolutionaries. Um, In fact, it's likely that these guys were not much different than Barabbas, who had been freed instead of Jesus, as we talked about in last week's message. These were likely men whose opposition to Roman rule had led them to go as far as murder, to to commit some pretty serious crimes, um, obviously, that, that Rome would infer as worthy of death. Bottom line, as far as the Romans were concerned, these two absolutely deserved death. And really, this is another instance of prophecy being fulfilled. So many years earlier, as recorded in the book of Isaiah, God said this through his prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, beginning verse 12, he said, I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Most biblical scholars would agree that, that, that he was counted among the rebels that was spoken by Isaiah so many years earlier was fulfilled when Jesus was crucified between two rebels himself. Additionally, Jesus could very accurately be described as a rebel. I mean, a rebel can simply be defined as one who is disobedient. And in a lot of ways, as far as the Jewish viewpoint went, he was disobedient to the Jewish rulers and to Rome. He had caused some trouble for those leaders, and therefore he was viewed as a troublemaker, as a rebel. And now he was being crucified among those other rebels. And the Gospels are fairly consistent in the account. When you go to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, in different stories there are some differences. This one at least begins pretty consistently. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 38, we read this. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. In Mark, you get, at least in our English translation, the exact same phrase. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Luke is a little more... Uh, involved in his description, chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. And then John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross, and two others were crucified with him, one on either side, with Jesus between them. And so this is is where we get the whole image that we see, the three crosses. You you drive down the highway, you will see more likely than you see one cross, you will see three on a hill. If I had a hill, I'd probably put three crosses on it too. It's a good reminder. You've seen the artistic renderings. Usually Jesus' cross is a little bit higher or a little bit closer, but you see the three crosses. This is why, because it's very clear. Then when Jesus was nailed to the cross, there was a thief on his right and a thief on his left. There was a criminal on his right, a criminal on his left. Matthew and Mark's accounts, them both include a reference to these men speaking to Jesus while they were on their crosses. In Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 31, the leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah 
the king of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. It says, even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. In Matthew chapter 27, similar idea here in verse 44, even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Which to me is kind of crazy. And we'll get a little deeper into this in a few minutes, but these guys knew why they were on the cross. And it's not to say that they necessarily knew anything specific about Jesus, but I'm sure that they had heard what was going on. And yet they decided in those moments that it was easier to just join in with the ridicule than to just stay silent. It's just, it's interesting to me. Luke's account goes a little bit farther. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, or you prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. And this is where our discussion gets interesting today, because we would assume based on the accounts in the other gospel writings, and even what was previously written in this account, Luke's account, we would say that previously both criminals were joining in on ridiculing Jesus. And why not? In truth, they spent a longer amount of time on the cross than we often realize. If you read through the gospel accounts, any given gospel account or even all of them, it can sometimes be hard to remember that if you look closely at the details, we make this assumption, especially from Mark's account, that Jesus was on the cross for around six hours. Now that's a long time if you're busy. I'm guessing that's an even longer time if you're literally just hanging on a cross, slowly dying. And while their physical ability to carry on a conversation would have gotten more and more difficult as the hours passed, they certainly could have spoken with one another. We see that. In fact, it's extremely likely that the two crucified with Jesus weren't in nearly as bad a shape as Jesus was when they were placed on the crosses. We can infer that from something we read in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 30. This is actually the end of Jesus' life here. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. We, we talked last week about how ridiculous it was that the religious leaders were, were picking and choosing what laws of God they held to, because when they needed to go speak to Pilate, um, in order to enter where Pilate was, they would have made themselves unclean and unavailable for the Passover celebration. And so they stayed outside. They made Pilate come to them. They were so concerned about this law that said they couldn't cross this line. And yet in the midst of all of that, they were killing an innocent man. And, I, and we talked about that last week, that that just doesn't make sense that, that they would be that concerned with something as simple as a line not to cross. And yet they were willing to conspire to commit murder. And here we are again in a situation where they, they have to honor the Sabbath, especially since it's Passover. And we couldn't possibly have these bodies hanging on these crosses because that just wouldn't be very good. And, and see, the problem was if the sun went down before they had passed away, they would not be able to take them down because that was considered work on the Sabbath. And so they said, we, we need these guys to die quicker so that we can clean things up and go on with our religious tradition. It's kind of ridiculous. And that's what they asked for. They, additionally, if I were Pilate, I think eventually I'd say, okay, listen, <laughs> I've done your dirty work for you. 
leave me out of this. But they go to him and they ask him to hasten their deaths. It's ridiculous. And yet Pilate did it. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. You see, to me, that, that shows that the criminals were clearly not as far gone as Jesus physically at the point they were placed on the cross, which makes sense because as we read through the gospel accounts, you see an awful lot of physical torture inflicted on Jesus as he prepares to go to the cross. And while we're not sure exactly what happened to these other criminals prior to being on the cross, my guess is it wasn't as severe. In the book, The Physical Death and Resurrection, A Surgeon's View, Dr. Jose Norberto, he wrote this. He said, because healthy, muscular victims could temporarily overcome the respiratory unbalance of crucifixion by pushing their bodies upward, the Roman soldiers would fracture the victim's legs with a hard blow to counteract this survival maneuver and speed up the dying process. And so they would be able to use their legs to push themselves up, to take a deeper breath, to give themselves a little more oxygen, a little more time, and by breaking the legs, they took away that ability in a hastened death. So the, not only were they able to talk, but again, it's likely that the two criminals next to Jesus were joining in on the ridiculing of this man who was actually a lot worse off than they were, who was a lot closer to death than they were. And so the one criminal continues his verbal assault. We started to read that. We'll read it again in verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffs, so you're the Messiah, or you prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. You see, obviously, this particular criminal doesn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But even if this is laced with sarcasm, and I believe it is, he still throws it out there. If you are who you say you are, you might as well prove it and save yourself. And if you're going to go to the trouble of saving yourself, you might as well save us too. You know, if you've got that kind of power, you might as well do it. He doesn't really think it's going to happen, but he'd be glad to be saved. To me, it's kind of like those things that float around social media from time to time today where it says, Bill Gates has decided to share $1 million with the first 1,000 people who share this status, share this to make sure you're one of the 1,000. And some of us will see those things, and we know that it's fake, we know that it's a scam, but we share it anyway, and we go, just in case, right? We say, just in case this is real, I would like to win. Um, and, and I feel like on some level, that's what this criminal is doing. He's saying, I don't in his position, because if you were a person who had done the things that he had done, and we don't know the specifics, but clearly Rome felt he was worthy of execution. If we had done the things that he'd done, and we understood that we were on a cross for a reason, we would struggle to believe that somebody else could be put up there for no reason. You know, and, and if, if Jesus didn't do this, but if Jesus got up there and he said, if he had said, I'm innocent, they'd, oh yeah, me too. Yep, innocent completely. Alibi, everything, got it all. They would say, you know what, I'm, I'm on this cross for a reason, I'm sure he is too. I'm not sure if we were him, we would be any different. Why would we assume, even if we hated Rome with all our hearts, that they would execute someone for no reason? And yet the other criminal, who was likely a part of the ridicule at some point, all of those accounts say the criminals, that both of them joined in on the ridicule. The other one clearly has a change of heart. We don't know if this guy had previous knowledge of Jesus. I wish we knew that. We don't know what moved in him. 
We don't know if his entire change of heart came from something Jesus had just said in Luke chapter 23. Beginning in verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Based on where this falls in the story in Luke's account specifically, the criminals almost certainly would have heard Jesus say these words. Could that be enough to change this man's heart? Boy, I think it could be. We have a fairly good understanding of what Jesus looked like at this point because of the accounts of the beating that he took. It was way over the top. He was probably already bordering on unrecognizable. He was being hung on a cross. They were literally doing things just to mess with him at this point. And then to hear this man who's being so wronged Say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. I mean, to me, that could have had enough power to change this man's heart. We don't know for sure. But it's clear that his heart was moved, because then we read this in Luke 23, beginning in verse 40. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The second criminal is commonly referred to as the the penitent thief or the repentant thief. And I don't want us to miss exactly what he said and what he did in this moment with these brief words while he's hanging on a cross next to Jesus. Honestly, he confessed and he repented. He acknowledged his crimes. He says, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. He, he, he acknowledges his crimes, his sins, and the fact that he deserved to die. Uh, Bible commentator Johann Bengel said it this way. He said, his situation on an exceedingly hard cross may have had something to do with the changed attitude, for conversion seldom takes place on a soft and easy couch. And he even questions that in the other thief, right? In the other criminal, he says, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die. You haven't figured it out up to this point, but you're hanging on a cross about to die. Don't you even wonder? Don't you even think there might be a God and you probably ought to fear Him? Don't don't you even... Or you're just content to join in with the crowd and ridicule this man who's dying just like we are. This guy had had his whole life to realize he was on the wrong path, but for this particular criminal who seems to have a change of heart here, it doesn't mean that this realization didn't still happen for him. In this moment, he knew there was something different about Jesus, and he wanted whatever it was that Jesus could give him. And the second thing he did was he confirmed his faith. Because he asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He acknowledges that he believes that Jesus would come into his kingdom, that that death or not, that Jesus would live, and that Jesus himself had the power to grant him life as well. And I don't think for a second in any way that he's talking about his physical life like the other criminal spoke of when he said, oh, just in case you save yourself, save me too. Whatever this man's background, whatever his previous knowledge, this criminal believed that Jesus had the power to save him. And he asked him to do just that. Verse 43, and Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me 
in paradise. And in the midst of dying on a cross, an extremely painful way to go, I wonder, you know, you've had moments in your life, I know that I have, where where peace kind of comes over you, where where even in the midst of trouble, you're like, okay, I'm okay. Sometimes it's it's because somebody's come to your aid. Sometimes it's just because it's just a feeling. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. But you've had those moments where I want you to think about that peace that you've experienced and multiply it over and over and over again. Because I have to believe this thief, this criminal in the moment when he said, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. It was still painful. And it was still an awful way to go. But I truly believe that he believed. And he would have felt peace in the midst of his suffering. Now there's a natural question that arises here um, that I've certainly heard before. And that, that question is, why didn't the thief need to be baptized? Wasn't there more to this process? And I would encourage you to do your own research on this if that interests you. I absolutely would. The simple answer that I understand is not not that simple, but the simple answer is that this thief was saved under the old covenant because Jesus had had not yet died and therefore had not yet risen from the dead. He had not yet defeated death. The new covenant was not yet in effect. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 says, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. And so what we mean by that is Jesus' death and resurrection brought about a new standard for how one was saved. Not by the law of the Old Testament, not by the sacrificial system that they held to as part of the law of the Old Testament, but through the fulfillment of the law in the person of Jesus and in his death and resurrection. So when Jesus defeated death, from that point on, Jesus was the way to God. Jesus was the way to eternal life. And so up until this point, they had still relied on the Old Testament law. Additionally, additionally, seemingly countless times while Jesus walked the earth, certainly more times than are even recorded in Scripture, we hear Jesus interact with someone, and he says something similar to these words, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has the power to say, your sins are forgiven. And so in my opinion, if Jesus says to this criminal, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the case. That's where he's going to be. And it changes nothing about what baptism is or what it means. In fact, I love 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. This, this picture of baptism says, And that water is a picture of baptism which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To me, that's really all the answer I need. But again, I'd encourage you, if you have questions, to do some research on those verses. But Jesus got to tell this guy, today you will be in paradise. And that's got to give him some comfort in the face of what was going on. But, but see, here's where we need to get to today. And I said this last week too, but one of the struggles in a series like this can be like, okay, that's great, here's the story. Maybe I learned something I didn't know before. What does this mean for me? What can I take away from this? Is there some practical application to be drawn out of these pieces of the story of Easter, of the death and resurrection of Jesus? And so if there's nothing else that you learned today, if I didn't say anything you didn't already know, my hope is that you would walk away knowing this, that you are never too far gone from God, and neither is anyone else. Here was the thief 
criminal, a revolutionary, maybe even a murderer. Sentenced to death and almost certainly deserved to be sentenced to death. And really, in the last moments of his life, he came to know and believe that Jesus could save him and Jesus did save him. And we have no reason to believe anything other than the truth that this man was with Jesus in paradise that very day. Because Jesus has died for all, not just for you and me, not just for people who get it before it's too late, not just, people who, not just for people who get it and then never stray, not just for people who've avoided the sins we interpret as the worst ones, not just for people whose total sin tally falls below some imaginary threshold. He died for all. And the truth is, we hear these stories, we hear about deathbed confessions of faith, you know, deathbed conversions, where people have, have lived their whole life far from God, and then, and then they become ill or something goes on, and they, they end up literally on their deathbed, and in that moment they decide, okay, I've ran from God long enough, and they come back to Him, and we say, well, that's, that's great. And, and to take it even a step further, we hear about death row conversions, People who have been sentenced to die for whatever reason who somebody gets them a Bible or they begin to read a Bible while they're in confinement and they, they come to believe and know and we say that's great. But here's the truth. Some of us sometimes are guilty of doubting those. We say, did they really believe? You know, they went their whole life not believing. Did they really believe? Or, or have they done all these horrible things? Did they... Do they really believe, or maybe even the worst question we sometimes are tempted to ask. After the life that they've lived, after the things that they've done, could God forgive them? We're not supposed to ask those questions, but we're human and sometimes we do. We're tempted to wonder, especially if we've, we've grown up in the church, maybe or if we've been Christians for a long time, we're tempted to wonder, now wait a minute, this doesn't seem fair. Because I've been trying to live my life right for, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They got to do whatever they want for 90, and at the last minute they decide, okay, I want to follow Jesus now. That doesn't seem right, and we, we wonder and we doubt. We're not sure. And we think, how do we know they meant it? Could God ever really forgive someone like that? And here's my truthful answer to both of those questions, really to that second question. I sure hope so. I sure hope so, because I believe he forgives me for every single screw-up I have, and trust me when I say there are plenty of them. And if I, as messed up as I am, and if you, as messed up as you are, can be saved, who in the world are we to even begin to suggest that someone else might not be worthy of being saved in the same way? In truth, that'd just be one more screw-up we'd need to be forgiven for. Jesus died for you and for me and for all no exclusions, no limits, as long as you're still breathing, you can still be saved. He died for every person we might think deserves to be saved, for every person we'd be tempted to think might not be, and for every villain in this story. He was dying for the guys that were on the crosses next to him, and the people in the crowd that were ridiculing him, for Pilate and his officials who destroyed his physical body to the Jewish leaders who caused this whole problem in the first place, to Judas, who was their pawn. He, he, he died for all of them, in front of them, for you and for me. 
There is no one too far gone. So that person in your life, maybe it's even you, but that person in your life who hasn't found their way back to God, do not give up on them. Because they have a Savior who died to pay the price for their sins, even if they don't know it yet. And you can tell them about it. You can introduce them to Jesus. They need to know that. It may take time. It may take years. It may take decades. Some of you have people that you have been praying for and working on for years, for decades. You invite them to church all the time and they've never set foot. Don't give up. Because no one is too far gone from God. And if you can identify that person or those people in your life, maybe just maybe the next step you can take is to get them here next week, to invite them, to persuade them to come to church with you next Sunday. We say this every year at this time of year, and I mean it. People are more likely to accept an invitation to church on Easter. And they may do it just to check it off and feel better about themselves. And that's okay, because I want to make you this promise. If you bring someone here next Sunday, they will leave having heard what God did for them through Jesus Christ. I can't guarantee that they'll be saved. I can't guarantee that they'll believe. I would never try to make those guarantees, but I guarantee they will hear the gospel, the story of what God did, and they will hopefully understand that he did what he did, as amazing as it was, for them. And honestly, that should be reason enough to invite them. So do whatever it takes. Tell them about the coffee and donuts. I'll get better donuts, I promise. If that's what it takes, we'll make it happen. Tell them you'll buy them lunch sometime. Listen, if they're a person who doesn't have a lot of family or doesn't do stuff on Easter, invite them into your family gathering. Say, hey, we're having a big Easter lunch in my house. You should come. They'll say, okay. Then you say, okay, but we got to go to church first. You're not lying. You're just being a little bit shrewd. Whatever it takes. Tell them if they've got kids, say, listen, we've got a safe place. Your kids can hang out. They're going to learn. They're going to have fun. They're going to be well taken care of. And you can come in here and you can sit. Just relax for an hour. They don't have to know they're going to hear the gospel. I'll take care of that part. Just whatever it takes. If there's someone in your life that doesn't know Jesus. Here's another thing I'll promise you. We're not going to make them stand up and introduce themselves. There are still churches that do that, and I'm not trying to speak ill of that. But I'd be straight out the back door. If I was at a church and a group of people of this size for the first time, and they said, hey, stand up and introduce yourself, I'd be like, no. <laughs> I'm the guy that's leaving. That's who I am. <laughs> We're not going to do that. We're not, if somebody wants to come and be anonymous, we want them to be able to be anonymous. Now, they're probably going to get their hand shaking at the door, and they might get a hug from Larry. That's okay. But if you want to be anonymous, that's fine. Whatever it takes, if you can identify somebody in your life, who doesn't know what God did for them through Jesus Christ. We want them to know. We want them to know. And you, and you can tell them, and you should tell them. But if you're not sure what the words are, if you're not sure what to say, if that's the part that you struggle with, get them here next week, and I promise you, they will hear the gospel. We'll make sure that they find out what God did for them, and what it means for their lives. Every single day, countless people die not knowing what God did for them. We need to start to lower that number. We start lowering that number by letting more people know that there's a God who loves them, who made a way through a Savior that died for them on a cross, who took their sin, their shame, their punishment, 
dealt with it all so that they could be saved. It's the one thing everybody needs to know. Let's pray. God, for those of us that know you, who know what you've done for us through Jesus, for the times that we've kept it to ourselves, we're sorry. God, we hold inside of us the most important piece of information, the most important news that lost people need to know. So often we're unwilling to share it. And there's a lot of reasons for that. God. I pray that whatever those reasons are, you would help us to get them out of the way. God, I pray that your spirit would, would, would inspire us, would push us, would, would make it so clear to us, the people in our lives who need to know you, that we can't help but tell them. We can't help but invite them. We can't help but, but show them love to do whatever it takes to reach them for you. God, this week, help us to not ignore those opportunities. God, we'd love to run out of chairs in here because it would mean that many more people are hearing what you've done for them. Guys, we move into a time of communion. I pray that our focus would be on that cross and make all the difference. It was a tool meant for execution you used a part of saving us. Help us to focus on that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, it's interesting. We don't, um, we don't talk a ton about the Holy Spirit. We really should. We talk a lot about God the Father. We talk a lot about Jesus the Son. And, and we'll read scriptures that say God's going to leave us the whole, you know, when Jesus goes back to heaven, he's going to send us the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be around us. And we say, yeah, the Holy Spirit is great. But we don't really talk about it that much, and I think it's because we're uncomfortable with it. We're a little bit freaked out by it because it's kind of supernatural in a lot of ways. But here's what I believe. I believe that as we talk about things like this where we say there's somebody in your life that needs to know Jesus, if somebody comes to your mind, if somebody comes into your thought process, I don't believe that that's a coincidence. And I don't want you for a second, and myself included, I don't want to discount for a second that that picture in my mind, that person's name in my mind, that the Holy Spirit isn't prompting me to talk to that person. There's a good chance this week, if you take this seriously, if you think this through, that somebody's going to come into your thought process, somebody's going to come into your mind, or somebody's going to show up in your life in a place you don't expect. Do not assume that that's not the Holy Spirit prompting you. And do not miss the opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to church on Sunday. You want to come with me? Never hurts to ask. We're going to sing a song as we prepare our hearts for communion. And we just want you to know the invitation to follow Jesus Christ is always open. We'd always want to talk to you about that. Or if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ and you've wandered away, that invitation is also always open. We would love to talk to you about that. Or if you've been around New Life for a while and you think, man, it's, it's time for me to become a part of the family, to, to become a member of, of the church here, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. And so that invitation, all three of them are open all the time. But they're also open during this time if you want to come as we stand and sing together.